welcome here. Um, if this is your first time here, here's what we talked about last week for like two seconds. We said, hey guys, you're gonna feel how jam-packed this room is. We're aware of the fire code. Our team is actively praying through. I'm also gonna explain intergenerational ministry and, and our view of kids in just a second. Um, but for now, uh, right now we're, we are having one gathering. And the reason we're doing that is so that we can have prayer at nine. And so if you haven't been to prayer at nine, um, it's very simple. We have this soothing instrumental music playing, and we have journals and prayer books if you need help starting a prayer. Um, there's scripture on the screen that just rolls through all morning, and, and that's it. No one from the mic is leading anything. I pray at 9 and 9.45 to start and finish the time. But it's really just a space uh, to slow down. Isn't that a crazy thought? Just to slow your mind down a little bit. And maybe, maybe slow down even enough to, to genuinely listen. I think sometimes our souls are trying to talk to us, uh, but our brains are just a little louder. And uh, I don't get the science behind what I just said, but hopefully you understand what I'm getting at. <laughs> um, yeah, sometimes we just need a place to sit still. What's up? Oh, welcome back. Yeah. I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking at you, bro. What's up? Oh, that's awesome. I forgot people are coming back from summer. I'm ADD. I'm Joshua. I'm the pastor here. Uh, uh, but anyway, I think, just, I, just want, I want you to know about prayer. Um, nothing will be forced on you. We are not trying to emotionally manipulate you in prayer. It's literally you come and sit in a chair and, and you talk to God however you want. And if anything, you can just sit and be quiet for 45 minutes. And I swear to you, that's therapeutic. So anyway, that's at nine. We've got the 10 o'clock worship, and we'll have the 10 o'clock worship until we decide, you know what, fire code's 200, and we need to have two worship gatherings. We'll let you know. All right, all right. We're in the, am I getting feedback? Just a little, just a little over here, maybe? I don't know. Okay, cool. All right, so this is the third week of a three-week series where we're breaking down our mission statement. So if you're new here, our mission at Ethos is to love God, to love people, and to awaken a movement. So two weeks ago, this is on the podcast, all right? Two weeks ago, I talked about loving God. Last week, Gentry Wigington talked about loving people. If you were not here last week, I cannot stress this enough, listen to Gentry's teaching. It was fire, all right, in a good way. Today's about awakening a movement. It wouldn't be a mission statement without like some epic ending, would it? You know, love God, love people, and awaken a movement. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> like what does that mean? <laughs> Just across the globe, unstoppable, like no, no laws or legislation can slow it down, you know? And so it's really epic. Uh, and what we're talking about is really just awakening a movement among us that Jesus already started uh, 2,000 years ago with his resurrection and the call to go make disciples. Today, we're gonna put like a nice little microscope on a tiny, teeny fragment of what awakening a movement can look like. Uh, we're gonna center it around this word, compassion. And so if you're taking notes, that's the name of the teaching, all right? Awaken a movement, colon, compassion. Uh, we don't have creative names here, okay? Sometimes we have alliteration, and when that happens, it's pretty special. All right, um, so uh, first, I wanna start out with a working definition of compassion, okay? Compassion. Sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. Take a moment and actually absorb that definition. 
If you're like me, you hear a definition, you're like, great, I get it. And if I asked you what it was two seconds later, you're like, I don't know, but I did read it. My own take on it, like having so much sympathetic pity and concern for others that it directly impacts your thoughts and your actions toward them. So sort of compassion in motion, all right? And I wanna cover a story, um, and then I wanna cover a lot more stories uh, out of Matthew chapter 14, verses 15 through 21. So if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you've got a phone that has access to Google or the Bible app, uh, Matthew chapter 14, verses 15 through 21. Yeah, boom. So it's a famous story. Jesus feeds 5,000 people and then some. 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So 10,000, 20,000, who knows? Lots of people eating food. Jesus teaches an amazing sermon per usual. He heals the sick per usual. And on the surface, it's just a very Jesus story. Um, and for Christians that believe in Jesus, you won't even treat it like it's real. It just feels so like Jesus that it almost feels like there's a distance there. Like, all right, two fish, five loaves, feeds 20,000 people. Sure, deal. Sounds like him, you know. But I want to dig deeper into this story. It's really fantastic. And uh, I want to dig into this story by covering the two stories that precede this moment, this awesome moment where Jesus feeds thousands of people after preaching an amazing word, after healing the sick, all these amazing things that you're like, wow, that is so incredible. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be there? How epic would it have been? But we're going to put a, a little more focus on what Jesus had been going through and processing and living in, literally directly leading into this amazing moment where he feeds thousands through multiplying fish and bread miraculously. And we're gonna start in Matthew chapter 13. So if you're already in Matthew 14, you might not even have to turn a page in your Bible. Matthew 13, verses 53 through verse 58. Jesus, I'm not actually gonna read the passage, you can just look at it. I just want you to know that I'm not making the story up. So Jesus is in his hometown. He's been preaching, teaching, to the masses, and now he's traveled to Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, but grew up in Nazareth. Now, I want you to picture your hometown. Let's, if you're like me and you've moved a lot, picture the place you've lived the longest, but the hometown is where people saw you transition from adolescent to adult slowly. So Nazareth was the place where people knew Jesus before he ever started his public ministry. Have you ever wondered what Jesus would have been like? as a six-year-old. I either picture Jesus as a baby or like as a grown man. I never picture six-year-old Jesus. Gut feeling he would have gotten on my nerves. You know what I mean? Whether I was his age or older, he'd just be a mirror into my own depravity at all times, you know, just perfectly righteous. At six, gosh, you know, he probably brought the worst out of his teachers. Like, Jesus, could you just mess up once, you know? Golly, how are you more mature than me? They saw him at 12, at 16. They saw Jesus begin to grow his beard. You know what I mean? I only got fully bearded Jesus in my head. I just assume he had one, you know? Like really full, really thick, like just like looking like a Persian king, you know? But they saw him and that was peach fuzz. That's the hometown. I don't know if you know this, but in my opinion, maybe some people wouldn't say this. If you're a public speaker, there is no safer spot than hometown. 
Now, I'm from Mayfield, Kentucky, shout out. It's a great little small town. We held it down. A lot of hunters, a lot of country music, things that I did not acquire but appreciate. But I love preaching in my hometown. You know why? Because even if you bomb, they'll be like, hey, good job. That was amazing. And you're like, hey, I know you're lying, but for the sake of both of us, I'm just going to receive this as truth because it feels good for me and you think you did something here. So that's great. You know what I mean? Like default, no matter what, people aren't going to be like, hey, man, here was like six things I didn't like. Why? Because they know you, dog. They lo- dog? I don't know what that was. They love you. Like, they love you. They support you. They care about you, Right? And when you're preaching to your hometown, you see all these faces. I remember you in third grade, sixth grade, ninth grade, I got all these memories. So Jesus goes to Nazareth, and surely this is gonna be the warmest reception possible. A bunch of people that knew him as a child that watched him grow into an adult. But what happens? It's really interesting. They kind of mock him. They're like, he's like preaching about being the Messiah, which low-key, that's weird. So I understand. It's a pretty big thing to say about yourself, audacious maybe. But Jesus says it. This is who I am. This is the gospel. This is the kingdom. And their response is, hey, you're the same guy that we watched like your dad train you how to be a carpenter, right? That's still you. You're right. Is that everything going okay? How's your head? Concussion? You've been playing too much football? Like, what's going on? You know what I mean? They literally are like, hey, I know your mom, all right? Why don't you, why don't you chill? Talking about what you're talking about. I know your mom, okay? We grew up in the same house. I know you. They reject them. They make fun of them, Literally. And I know we don't think of Jesus as a real person sometimes, but picture this. All these familiar faces, and instead of smiles, instead of being excited, instead of feeling happy for Jesus and being like, wow, Jesus, this is amazing. You're changing my life. They're like, dude, what, literally, literally, what are you talking about? And stop talking about it. And the story ends in verse 58, and it says that nothing happens. No healings, no miracles. Why? Because they did not believe him. And it wasn't out of this, will you teach us how to have faith, Jesus? We want it, we want it. It was out of this, we are not interested. His best friends, his own household. We know some of his family members didn't care a thing about what he was saying until after Jesus ascended to the heavens. Low-key detail, he ascended to the heavens. So this is what Jesus is going through. Hometown rejection. Everybody he grew up with, we're not buying it, Jesus. He leaves. Very next verse, Matthew 14, next story, 1 through 14. In this story, Jesus loses his friend. A man by the name of John the Baptist is murdered. And we quickly see Jesus hurting on such a personal level. Now, again, I know that it's hard to see Jesus as getting his feelings hurt. But I want you to picture this. Have you ever pictured Jesus grieving, not for the sins of the world? That was also something he grieved over, to be clear. But because someone close to him lost their life way too soon. What did his face look like when he hears this news? Hey, Jesus, tough news. John the Baptist was murdered. Why was he murdered? Because he was declaring who you were. He was talking about you. We don't get any details about what Jesus, how he reacted. We just know that he immediately gets in a boat and leaves. And we're left to let our imaginations wander. What did he feel when he heard John the Baptist died? I don't know if you know this, but John's mom and Jesus's mom were relatives. Meaning John and Jesus were like first, second, third cousins. I don't know what it is. But they were close. In Luke chapter one, Elizabeth pregnant with John the Baptist. If you don't know, this is pregnant. Pregnant. That's what I did behind the bistro table. 
Elizabeth is pregnant, Mary's pregnant, and Mary goes to see Elizabeth. They bump bellies. I don't know what that means. Hold on, my mic got messed up. That bump bellies thing was gonna be funnier. I planned that. So I was gonna be like, I don't know why, but when I started studying this, I couldn't get it. I, they tried to hug, and they were like, oh, oh, let's do a side hug, you know? Uh. And, uh, but Elizabeth and Mary are talking to each other. Listen to what Elizabeth says. She says, why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So before Jesus was born, before John was born, John was already anticipating with joy the coming of Jesus. How sick is that? Is that not that sick? Am I lying? Am I making this up? That's so cool. Before John's even like born, he's like, Jesus is close. And that's such a good preface to John the Baptist's ministry because he would spend his entire adult life trying to prepare the masses. Hey, you need to repent. You need to change your ways. Don't get it twisted. I'm baptizing with water, but one coming after me will baptize with the Spirit, with fire. Prepare yourselves. Jesus is coming. John the Baptist started his public ministry before Jesus. What a flex. They're the same age. And John's getting going a little early. Jesus, I gotta go, I gotta go preach. Jesus is like, I don't. (laughs) Not yet. He's like, I know, man. Let me go. I'm gonna prepare the way. Preaches this message of repenting baptizing people. Then one day Jesus shows up to the water, steps in that water. John goes, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. He can tell Jesus is about to ask something. Jesus goes, hey, I need you to baptize me. John goes, hey, hey, hey whoa, no way. No, 0% chance. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals, Jesus. I'm not even worthy to be a servant of you, Jesus. Much less can I stand in this position. You know, only one person baptized Jesus. It's John. Baptizes Jesus, God speaks over, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. So before the earth existed, God said, only one person will baptize my one and only son. Only one person's gonna baptize the son of God, John the Baptist, that guy. I can't imagine the memories Jesus had with this man. So when you read that John the Baptist was murdered and Jesus heard the news, and the first thing he does is withdraw to desolate places. I hope you feel the pain in Jesus's heart. It's very rare that he withdraws like this. He'd withdraw in the morning to go pray, but just kind of spontaneously, like, I gotta go. What does that mean? Did he remember knitting John together in his mother's womb? Did he remember the look on John's face? When he first stepped in the water and just saw John, like, I don't know what you're about to say, but whoa, I'm excited and I'm all ears. Just seeing the obedience in his eyes. Did he know if John the Baptist felt fear right before he died, or did he have courage? In that moment, did Jesus see Elizabeth and Zechariah, John's parents, grieving, mourning, knowing they're hurting, and on this side of heaven, like, death is the hardest Scripture doesn't give us much. He might have broke down crying. He might have screamed. He might have crawled into the fetal position. All we know is he withdrew. He gets on a boat, goes to a desolate place. I thought about this this week. A great way to get away from people is to get on a boat. Because if you don't have a boat, water is super hard to travel in. And I was like, that's an A1 strategy. I need to get myself a boat. Be one of those pastors. (laughs) I need to stack my cash up and get me a boat. 
He gets on a boat, very deliberate in action, needs to get alone. He's done everything necessary. And by all means, when we hear this about Jesus, now that I've given more color to John dying, do you not think he deserves some me time? Does he not need to go seek the comfort of heaven from his heavenly father? Like, Jesus, please, if anyone ever needed a sabbatical, my man, take you one. If anyone needed a vacation, get a little hall pass from the demands of ministry. You ever had a, hey, not right now moment? Not right now. Most of the time, but not right now. <laughs> Parents, you have this with your kids. You die for your kids, but every now and then they come up to you asking you for something, you're like, <laughs> flesh and blood that I would die for. You better leave, <laughs> okay? Not right now. Like, if it was ever a, hey, not right now moment, Jesus is smack dab in the middle of one. But you know what happens? Someone leaks out the information. Probably Judas. Someone leaks out the information. <laughs> They're like, hey, Jesus is over there, and I know his favorite dock spot. I know where he's going when he goes away to pray. So it says that as Jesus withdraws to desolate places, when he docks the boat, when he gets to shore, do you know what has happened? Towns, plural. No matter how popular you are, none of us are bringing towns to ourselves, okay? They hear about Jesus, and towns flock to where he docks his boat. So when he pulls up to shore, he sees 10, 15, 20,000 people waiting for him. Do you remember where we're at with Jesus? All the feelings, all the grief, okay? On the boat, the quiet of nature, waves gently lapping up against the boat. Man, God, I just need some alone time. Looks up, He's omniscient, so he already knows this is going to happen, but also he's human, so we'll have to figure out those details later. But sees all the people. Okay. What is his first reaction? I'm having a panic attack on behalf of Jesus about a story that happened 2,000 years ago thinking about this moment. Let this dude grieve. Guys, you know, like who's showing up going, hey, guys, before we ask him to heal us, I want to check in on his emotional health. Jesus, how are you? How was your week? Right? Is that what's happening? No, they're like, that dude heals people? Dude, no kidding, I'm deaf in my right ear. Jesus, here first, okay? Like, I'm crippled, Jesus, come here. I'm blind, Jesus, come here. I need you, I need you, I need you, Jesus. All he sees is need. Not one person like, hey, why don't you take a break? Anything to eat before you start preaching? Like, no, just needs all around him. Everyone just assuming that Jesus is always living at a 10 out of 10. No chance he's having a bad day, right? And our culture, me, I'm just like, oh man, let this dude breathe. But here's where Jesus is so different. Matthew 14, he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had what? Compassion. Let that marinate. Aware of all of his grief, of all the pain within his soul. But when he looked out and he saw those eyes, he's compelled by compassion. His concern for the sufferings of those around him immediately trumps his concern for his own. Not because he hated doing this thing, having compassion, but he knew it was right, so he had to do it. 
Not because he felt pressure. Not because someone gave him a really good sermon and convinced him to care. But because he was compelled by it. He saw them and compassion was the result of it. He saw them. And I'm not saying this is the standard I'm gonna call us to. Whenever you lose a loved one, please go grieve, okay? There's a little bit of a gap between us and Jesus. We can all just acknowledge that. But I am saying this compassion is central to the gospel. And the same spirit that lives in Jesus, that he, that he nicknames the spirit of truth, the helper, he promised to us and said greater things in you. You'll see greater things happen in you than you've seen in my earthly ministry. So I'm not saying when you lose a loved one, make sure you care about others before yourself. Of course I'm not saying that. I am saying consider the same spirit in Jesus in this moment is in you. There are more things possible in your soul and your view of others than you realize. The Holy Spirit's firmly aware. Philippians 2, this is just so beautiful. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, not self-deprecation, not self-hatred. We ain't doing that. Come on. Out of rich identity, in humility, count others more. Yes, now that's true. More significant than yourself. That's the calling to wrestle with. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. You want to talk about laying down status? Don't count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, not just to the point of having compassion after losing a friend, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, I had to include this part. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord, and we do confess that Christ, you are Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the compassion that Jesus has had on your life, whether you know it or not. In the perfection of heaven, all of existence, singing his praises. And if humans had shut their mouths, the mountains themselves would have sang a hymn. Like with all that going on, Jesus said, I care about your suffering far too much to sit on my throne that is rightly mine. And he takes on flesh. So of course, and one of his closest confidants and friends loses his life. He looks at that crowd and has compassion we live in a culture that lacks compassion. In some circles, actively discourages compassion. We throw stones at our accusers. We go eye for an eye. Broad brush strokes here. We're entitled to our emotions and our feelings. We jump to conclusions based on skin tone and what part of town you live in. We judge others to elevate ourselves. We oppress or we oppress our oppressors if we get the upper hand. We bully or we bully our bullies. We look the other way to dodge the inconvenience of loving and listening. We overthink and assume, what's their motive? What do they really want? Will this even matter in the grand scheme of things? 
We spend more time demanding stuff from other people groups than ourselves. That group of people, so stupid, so arrogant. They've got so much to learn. That group of people, they don't actually care. It's all a charade. They're the ones that have hard hearts. That group is so selfish and ignorant. I can't believe them over there. And we offload the lifeblood of the gospel. We make it someone else's responsibility, refusing to look in the mirror and going, Jesus, there's no way I've matched your compassion. There's no way. When you match the compassion of Jesus, then you can take a break. When you match the compassion of Jesus, then you can start pointing fingers. Spoiler alert, you'll never be able to point fingers. Jesus will always take you further. That's the beauty. His compassion for you never stopped, and he will teach you how to have this compassionate spirit that knows no ends that is not seeking a reciprocated, compassionate relationship, is only seeking to pour out. And if it fills someone up, magically, you are filled. But not because someone did something for you, but because God did something to you, through you, for their sake. I'm filled. We need Jesus to do a miracle in our distracted, self-obsessed, hurried hearts. We are set apart, sanctified. We are to look different, to take compassion farther than what makes us comfortable. And this does not start with anyone else but me. When I wrote that, that little note, I wrote you, and then I went, that is contradictory to the teaching I'm teaching. It starts with me. And if you're you, it does not start with me. It starts with you, because you're, you get it. <laughs> Lighten attention. Jesus, fill me. Slow me down. Slow me down. I rush to assumption. I rush to excuses. I rush to reasons. Before I've even said, God, are you trying to teach me something? Before I even say that, my excuses come out. What if you're doing it right and you just need to slow down long enough for God to go, nope, we're good. You're doing amazing. I'm so proud of you. Keep going. Love you. But if you're not slowing down long enough, you're never going to hear what God Almighty wants to say, what he might want to teach you. A movement, awaken a movement. A movement cannot exist. It literally is impossible to exist without compassion. This word is required without empathy, without a desire to see someone grow, to see them healed, to see them restored, no matter how long it takes, no caveats. That's what's so awesome about his grace. When the prodigal comes home, he gets a party, he gets a bear hug. That's you and I. So how dare we put rules and restrictions and time limits? It's so like us, like Peter. Hey, how many times do we forgive? Seven, 70, 700? Can you give us a number? Infinite. Welcome to the grace of God. Welcome to the compassion of Jesus. Jesus quickly sets aside his grief because he has compassion, not because he's chained by legalism or the compulsive need not to sin, not because he thinks his needs don't matter, not because he's scared God will be mad. He does it because he loves because he sees outside of himself. Because when he sees need and pain and brokenness, 
He longs to soothe it, to heal it, to redeem it. And thanks be to God, because I am broken. I have suffered. I have been in pain. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for noticing. Wow. This is the gospel. It sees people. It looks into their eyes. It doesn't think of a way to exit the conversation or to pretend like you got distracted by something over here. I was like, I'm right here, listening to you, listening to the spirit within me that made you, that knit you together. I'm right here. It doesn't rush to judgment. It does not rush to excuses. It doesn't rush to condescending thoughts about the other person to feel better about ourselves. It's a compassion so compelling that it trumps our calendars. Please do not miss what I just said. It trumps our habits, our preferences, our idols, and even our own pain. Whoa. In a world that weaponizes their own trauma, we know that both things can exist. Internal healing, working on me, but loving you, having compassion for you. I love the idea that in order to love others, you gotta love yourself. Just be cautious, all right? Do them both. Make sure you're doing them both. There's not an order to it. Do them both. The truth is the Holy Spirit will provide this compassion. It is not beyond us. And the good news is we live in a world that is dying of thirst for a compassion that is heaven sent. Dying of thirst. In Mark 9, 35 through 38, I don't know if you know this, Jesus likes to people watch. I've recently discovered a few different stories where Jesus is just straight staring at people and then he'll call his disciples over. And I don't know if he's like pointing and stuff, but he's like literally like, here's what I see, you know? Let's put it in our context. Picture you're at the Green Hills Mall right beside an Auntie Anne's on one of those little benches with Jesus. <laughs> Everyone's got their little bags. So excited. Actually, when you go to the mall, does anyone look that excited? I'm like, why are we all here? Are we having a good day? I'm not sure. This is weird. You all bought stuff. Smile a little bit more. Anyway, have a pretzel. I can't. Got allergies. All right. That's probably why they're not happy. Okay. Mark 9, 35 through 38. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogue and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, y'all, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Man, let that marinate. Golly, let that marinate. We point at the harvest. We blame the harvest. We look at our culture and we're like, what's the guy? The church is dying. That's for sure. <laughs> Got a few more years left where we get to just gather in buildings. Yeah, everyone hates us. Woe is me. The harvest is the problem. No, the harvest is plentiful, y'all. The laborers are few. The laborers are too busy complaining about what they perceive is a lack of harvest. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, the one in charge of the harvest, to send out laborers into his, har- his harvest. So picture Jesus, Annie Ann's people, shopping bags. Come here. I want you to look. Observe. Notice their pace. Look at how they walk and talk to each other. I don't know what you see, but here's what I need you to know about what I'm looking at. Man, the harvest is so plentiful. I see so many souls just waiting on you. I promise you, trust me here. They're waiting. When he looks at his disciples, he's looking at a bunch of people that have never preached the gospel in their life. And whoever they decide to preach to first has never heard it before, ever. That's the culture. That's how ready the harvest is. And Jesus goes, the harvest is plentiful. Remember when I told you I was gonna have you fish for men? What happened before that? You cast your nets to the other side and you caught so much that fishing nets designed for fishing started to rip because the load was so heavy. That was a metaphor. If you are willing to fish, you will catch more than you think. And I believe this. If you are willing to say yes, how's it gonna work? Gotta manage my calendar. Like, no, just say yes. To who? Yeah, yes, absolutely. This person, 100%. Yeah, just say yes. There are people like sheep without shepherds and they need the truth. In John 8, 32, the truth will set them free. There are souls longing for freedom and they don't need a preacher. They don't need an inspirational sermon. They need a friend for the long haul to over and over and over again care to love them, no matter what, to care about their pain, to care about their suffering. The problem is not the harvest. Will we be a people not convinced to have compassion, but to be compelled by it? Will we be a people that become so in love with God that our soul's instinct is to care Jesus didn't look at the crowd and go, I'm going to suppress my pain and put on a face and serve these people. I'm convinced it just happened. And you know what happens right after? Guess what he does as soon as he dismisses the thousands of people? He goes on a mountain. The next verse, he goes on a mountain and he goes and gets with his father. So please hear me. Jesus went and got the soothing comfort of his heavenly father over all his, I promise you he went and grieved John the Baptist. So please hear the nuance in this type of teaching, which I know is pretty hyped up. So how do we do this? This is where my sermon really falls off a cliff, so I really need your help here. You get to problem solve with me, all right? I went over this morning and was like, this didn't get practical. Uh, But I got two simple words, pray and do, all right? I'm just gonna try to keep this simple and I'm gonna let you use your imaginations and problem solving skills that you definitely have within you. Pray. Pray long enough for something to shift. I was talking with Cody, uh, I think it was like two weeks ago, and he brought up a very simple question. He's like, we get so concerned being legalistic that sometimes we forget like, hey, the longer you pray, it's probably more helpful. And that's not legalistic. That's just logical. You know? If I spend more time with you and not you, I'm probably closer to the one I spent more time with. Not legalism, you guys. You're fine. Everything's fine. You're safe. We love you. Let's hug, you know? Pray longer. You want more compassion? Pray for it for longer than 60 seconds. Pray for it for six hours one day. Don't leave a room. 
God, why do you have so much compassion? I'm gonna sit on that thought for an hour. Just sit there. Holy Spirit, will you help? I'm not going anywhere. Help. I'm just gonna say help a thousand times in a row. Will you help? Guys, give prayer more room in your life. Joshua, give prayer more room in your life. My prayer closet is about five minutes a day, and I'm on fire, actually. I'm doing great. It's longer than it used to be. But I'm like, God, I'm going to I'm gonna need to bump up that time, not because I think five minutes isn't enough. It's just I want more of you, okay? I need more. I want to hang with you. I'm in too much of a rush. I got to learn how to sit still in this prayer closet. If you want compassion, ask for it, and don't stop asking for it. Think about stories where Jesus is compassionate. Meditate on them. Ask Jesus' help. Show me Jesus. But also tell Jesus, I'm ready. I'm going to try. I'm not going to wait for your spirit to lift me up on the wings of eagles and float me towards someone on the side of the street and go, here it is, Joshua. Have compassion. No, Lord, I'm not going to overcomplicate it. When I can have compassion, I will today. And when I don't, I'm going to learn from it. And we're good. Shout out learning. Secondly, <laughs> straight up like a moth was in my throat. That was wild. <clears throat> Secondly, do. If you want to be compassionate, I'm going to have to blow your mind. Be compassionate. We tie too much emotion to this thing. I was talking to Sam Lewis at communion last week. He references Tim Keller quote. Tim Keller said, hey, if you're struggling to love others, here's a piece of advice. Love others. Why does that hit so hard? Why does that work for me? You're right. It's like when Jesus is like, you want to have faith? Have it. You're like, what? <laughs> no, <laughs> that doesn't work, you know, but it does. Have compassion. If you're struggling to have compassion, then go seek someone out and awkwardly have compassion on them. Because here's what's going to happen. The more you have compassion, the more you're going to have compassion. I was eating uh, this oats cup. It's called mush. I love it. Some people hate it. I opened the mush. On the lid, it said, action feeds motivation. I was like, dude, don't preach to me, oats, you know? <laughs> we forget that, y'all. Action. We're sitting here in hypotheticals. Okay, Lord, but like, well, first, let's define compassion. Okay, that's the definition. Okay, Lord, will you help me just to discern? when that moment comes. Dude, every moment, just pick one, all right? If it's a stranger or a friend, if it's someone at the grocery store or someone in your household, in your house church, at your work, go be compassionate. Go show you care. Ask questions. Give money. Give a hug. Ask someone if they need something. Literally stop thinking so hard. And the whole time, God, will you just keep teaching me? You're going to look dumb. Guys, we all look so dumb. We're all idiots. Do you guys know that? We're all so ridiculous. All of us. Look at our little clothes. <laughs> what are we doing? Gosh, we're so goofy. Go have compassion. Be vulnerable enough to try. You got to get out of your head. Get into action. The wise man that built his house on the rock when the storms come, it did not fall. He was wise because he obeyed in his actions, not his thinking. We got to do it. I have no way to close this up. It might happen organically. It might happen organized. Maybe some of you are going, I've really been wanting to volunteer lately. That's how I'm going to have compassion. Great. Some of you are going, man, I hate volunteering, but I want to have compassion. You don't got to volunteer. You're fine. But you got to be obedient to this call. 
to be a people spirit-led by compassion for the sake of others to care. So over communion, I want us to circle up and talk. I've talked forever and we're gonna talk some more. But listen, I learned this a long time ago. If we do this version of learning, you legit have a 30% chance of remembering what I'm saying. The minute you get in a circle and start exchanging ideas, hey, what could it look like to be compassionate? That goes from 30% to, I kid you not, 70%. 80% of what you experience, you remember. Go be compassionate. 90% of what you teach someone else, you remember. Go be compassionate for long enough that you actually have worth something, something worth sharing with someone else, but eventually share it. And over time, compassion is just going to become something that's default in your heart. I trust that. So over communion, what made Jesus so compassionate? It's okay if the answers are obvious, but I want you to think through this answer. Number two, what does it look like to begin praying for compassion? Well, I'll pray for compassion. Yeah, where? How? When? Break it down. Get practical. Visualize it. Number three, how can you practice compassion this week? Be specific to your context. You can stay simple and vague, but you need to get specific. I got this new watch that tells me the seconds. You've got two minutes to think on your own, and then I'm going to dismiss you to circle up and answer these questions. Here we go. We got a packed house. If you're new here, usually we would circle up chairs and it went very smoothly. We'll see what happens. <laughs> so whatever it looks like to circle your chairs, groups of three or four, or maybe you just lean over and go, hey, let's, let's all talk. But right now, if you're willing, of course you never have to do this, to answer these questions simply in groups of three or four, go ahead and do it. Figure out what it looks like for you guys. But if you don't know each other, introduce yourselves real quick. But I want you to try to answer these questions. A little louder. There we are, right there. That's the level we want, right there. 